Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for this time that we can come before you in your word. Lord, we thank you for the reminder in this season that in this life that we live on earth under the sun, you sent your only begotten son to be born from a virgin, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for our sins, to be the answer and the the gift and the uh, fulfillment of all the promises that we need. Lord, we're so thankful for Christ, and we want to look to Him now, Lord, even as we look to the book of Ecclesiastes, Lord, would this be a time that magnifies Jesus? In His name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good afternoon. It's good to be with all of you today. Uh, my name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes. We've been studying this book for a few months now, and we're going to be continuing that today. Now, um, one of the great things about uh, meeting at uh, 1.30 in the afternoon is that uh, I can wake up a little bit later. Um, but another thing that's good about um, renting space is that uh, they decorate for Christmas and we don't have to. So that's wonderful. Um, I do enjoy Christmas time. Um, but you might have noticed we're not doing a normal Advent series this year like we have done in the past. Uh, we will have a Christmas message on Christmas Eve when we meet for service, uh, rest assured. Um, but we're continuing through Ecclesiastes, and I think that um, even though it's not necessarily about Christmas, we'll see how it relates to the good news of Christ in the end. So you're in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, you've turned there with me, and you can kind of leave your finger or your bookmark there when we get into the sermon. In 1957, there was a Canadian psychoanalyst named Elliot Jacks. Maybe you've heard of him. Probably not. He was uh, a fairly successful psychoanalyst, and he was in London at the annual meeting of the British Psychoanalytical Society to present and read from a paper he had been working on for some time. Now, he was a pretty interesting, intelligent, and successful man, and he had something very interesting to say. About 100 attendees were there, and he began to talk about what he claimed to have uncovered. According to Jacks, he had found that people in their mid-30s typically experience a depressive period of life lasting a few years. He identified this phenomenon by studying various artists and composers in history, and he had noticed that around the age of 35, there would be a sudden change of style, or maybe a drop in productivity, or something drastic happening in their lives. But even in ordinary people, quote-unquote, he claimed this trend held true. The symptoms of this depressive period could include religious awakenings, a rise in promiscuity or infidelity, a sudden inability to enjoy life, hypochondriacal concern over health and appearance, and what he called compulsive attempts to remain young. And what he said was that this had to do with the fact that these individuals in their late 30s were looking back at the first half of their life, which they had finished, and they were looking forward with some regret and despair and existential dread at the second half to come. Eight years later, he would go on to publish this paper, and he would name the thing that he had documented the midlife crisis. You guys have heard of this, I'm sure. Have you ever had a crisis? Maybe not a midlife crisis. Maybe you're not at midlife yet, but an existential crisis that Elliot Jacks described, wondering what is the point of life? You know, what have I been doing all this time? What is the point on life in general, my life, feeling a sense of dread or depression or just vanity? And you know what? I know you have. 
And I don't say that generally speaking. I'm not talking to those of you who may watch this on YouTube later. I'm talking to those in this room. I know you have. Why? Because I've talked to you. I've been in a relationship with you. I know that this is something that many of us have struggled with. Truth be told, part of the reason we went to the book of Ecclesiastes this year was because in our, our time of ministry, we've noticed in the past few years more people than any other time saying they're in crisis, that they feel like they're in a crisis. They don't know what the point is of things. They don't know what they're doing. They feel a desire maybe inside to start over, blow things up, figure it all out from scratch. Now, not everyone has a midlife crisis in their 30s. But the feeling that Elliot Jacks gave name to is universal. It is common for most, if not all, people who live life under the sun. A depression that causes you to want to do something drastic. A deadness of life at times that makes it seem like you just need to start over, run away, as if it would solve any problems. Now, to be clear, I'm no exception to the feeling. The reason I've talked with you about that is because I felt that in my own life at times. And thankfully, by God's grace, neither was Solomon, who wrote this book, Ecclesiastes. So we're in the book of Ecclesiastes. In chapter 1, he says, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, declares the preacher. Right? And you could translate that meaningless. Solomon knows what it is to have an existential crisis, to question meaning and existence and what life is even about and everything you've done and tried to do. But by God's grace... He writes this book from the other side of that. He writes this book from from the other side of having gone through that. And that's what chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes is all about. So if you're there with me, you can read with me from Ecclesiastes 7. We're going to read verses 1 through 14. And we're going to get into this passage. Ecclesiastes 7. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This is the word of the Lord. Now we are just past the halfway point of this book. So far, Solomon has gone through the crisis for us, or maybe with us is better. The meaninglessness of life, the dread of death, the pointlessness of so many things he pursued, pleasure and and knowledge and experiences, and all these things to find meaning under the sun. But Ecclesiastes doesn't just name and explain the crisis. It actually tells us that despite the vanity of life, there is a way to live that is better. 
that can make that vanity more bearable, that can help us survive. And that's what we're going to try to answer today. So in a really practical way, I've decided to organize this message under one big basic idea, and this is maybe the title of the sermon, How to Survive Your Existential Crisis. Okay, How to Survive Your Existential Crisis. And there are three steps that I believe Solomon gives in this passage, if we have the ears to see. The first step to doing it in these verses is to look to the end. Verses 1 through 3 show us this. First, we need to look to the end. It starts with, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. Now, if you were to kind of read this for the first time, um, the beginning proverb, a good name is better than precious ointment, is a pretty um, kind of commonplace idea for the Jewish people. Now, we talked about this when we talked about the parables of Jesus, that in those days, reputation was extremely important, right? Uh, someone's reputation was so important that it would really affect every relationship in life. People all around the city and town and family would know what kind of name, quote-unquote, you had. And so a good name was more important, is better than good oil. That's what it says in the Hebrew. Now, commentators are quick to point out that this is something that wouldn't shock anyone. There is a proverb that says almost exactly the same thing. But the second half of the verse is where Solomon kind of takes us in a weird direction. It's different than we might expect. He follows up that proverb by pushing us to something uncomfortable. He says that the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, the first half is common. This statement, that the day of death is better than the day of birth, is not common at all in the Bible. Okay, you gotta understand, this is not something that people talk like often. And in fact, if you go into the Bible and you, and you look through it, what you see is that the only time that anyone talks this way is when they are really, really, really unhappy. Okay, that's what you're gonna see. Who talks this way? Well, Job when he gets all of those boils and he's attacked and he's lying on the ground half dead and his friends come and they give him no comfort, he says, man, I wish I was never born. That's when he says it. Jonah, in Jonah chapter 4, when he is super mad at God, that God decided to save the enemies of Israel, that God gave grace to the Syrians who had caused so much oppression, he's super mad at God, he says, it would be better to die than to live. There are very few times in the Bible that someone says death is better than life. Now, in New Testament, there's something that Paul says, and we might talk about that later. But in the Old Testament, it's very, very rare unless someone is unhappy. And that's why I think Solomon says it here. He knows that if you're reading his book and you're listening to his sermon, you're not going to be at chapter 7 thinking, man, life is hunky-dory. This is great, right? Life's going good for all of us. No, you're going to wonder, what is this all about? His six chapters have brought us to the edge of despair, as we said before, and they have the potential to make us pretty unhappy. But of course, it's not the book itself. It's just that the book is unveiling what life is about. Life can make us unhappy. And if he gets us to this point, and he has us right where he wants us, read the next verses. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. What is he saying? He's saying if you feel this way, if you're struggling, if you feel that, that, that death is better than life, if you're in a place where you're unhappy, well, that can be good for you. And in fact, it's the key to any lasting happiness to, to understand what's going to happen, to look ahead and understand that everything does come to death. 
See, ignorance is only bliss until you can no longer be ignorant. And so many people have experienced that in life. But Solomon, he wants us to look ahead. He wants us to think about death. He wants us to look to the end because he says doing so will give us the potential to have lasting gladness in life. So he says the day of death is better than the day of birth. The living will lay this to heart. Okay, You will understand it inside. By sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Even if you understand how bad life can be, that might be the key to having some hope in it. He wants us to be in despair and in pain so that we will look with him to the end. And if we look there with him, perhaps we'll find something that can help. You know, a few years ago, I went to California with my family. And I grew up in Southern California. But uh, my kids, they really only know Texas. And we went back, and it was during the summertime. And we were there, and we went to Long Beach, which is just, you know, a beach that's long. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. The city. And... um we went to an aquarium and we weren't planning to go to the beach, but afterwards it was a nice day. So we went to the beach and we weren't dressed for the beach. Okay. We were just dressed in normal clothing, but we were walking along the water. And, um, when we got there, it just was such a beautiful day that we decided, you know, maybe we'll go check out the water and go for, uh, at least dip our feet in the water. And one thing you might not know if you didn't grow up in, uh, the West coast is that the water in the Pacific ocean is always cold. Okay, it's always, you might not know that. If you grew up in Texas, you're spoiled, okay? It gets super warm, you just go in there, feels like nothing. But the Pacific Ocean is always cold. And so my kids, they're they're not dressed for it. They go to the water and they go to put their feet in and we realize this is not going to be comfortable. We get in there and the water is incredibly cold. It's probably like 60-some degrees. It feels like you're jumping into a cold pool. But they wanted to go to the beach. They wanted to play in the water. And so they had a choice. Were they going to spend the time that they had there running back and forth, kind of avoiding the waves, as you've seen kids do? Or were they going to embrace the fact that it was cold, get in the water, and then have a chance to enjoy the beach? In the same way, this is what Solomon is saying. We understand that death makes a lot of life meaningless. It makes life have vanity, but if we accept it, there's a chance to kind of grab life by the horns and deal with it to be frank and honest and find joy and gladness in some way. Know that you're going to die. Know it, accept it, believe it. Solomon said, even embrace it. And if so, you might be able to live life better. You know, I've been blessed to have the example in our church, multiple ladies in our congregation who have received the diagnosis you never want to receive, and led them to, to being able to consider intentionally the rest of their life. Right? We've seen that. If you guys have been in our church, you know what I'm talking about. To live well in light of death, to consider their souls, to think about the end, to bear fruit in the present. That's the first step. That's the invitation Solomon lays out here. If you embrace death, if you look to the end, you can live a better life. But the problem, of course, is that we don't like to do that. And when Elliot Jacks presented that paper to the Psychoanalytical Society, uh, he actually highlighted the case of one particular patient. And he said, this is what the patient said. Up until now, life has seemed like an endless upward slope with nothing but the distant horizon in view. But now suddenly I have reached the crest of the hill and stretching ahead is the downward slope with the end of the road in sight. Far enough away, but there is death observably present at the end. 
What he was saying is the reason people feel this way is they look at death and it makes them just want to hide, turn away, not face it. Those in attendance say that when he finished the meeting, instead of the normal kind of discussion, everyone was just silent in the room. And the next day, his mentor, the renowned psychoanalyst Melanie Klein, she told him, don't worry. If there's one thing psychoanalysts can't deal with, it's the theme of death. The world doesn't like this. We don't naturally like this. Even those supposedly trained to help people in crisis don't want to think about death. And even in the church, sometimes we don't want to think about it either. If I told you right now, kind of, to to turn to the person next to you and say, you're going to die, you probably wouldn't like it. Some visitors aren't coming back, right, if I do that today. We want smooth sailing. We want happy moments from the once upon a time to happily ever after. We want to just live in that bubble. And that's why the midlife crisis always looks kind of the same, doesn't it? Rather than deal with the end of life, rather than spend some time in the house of mourning, as Solomon says, instead we try to just live life in the house of new beginnings. A new job, new car, new old car, a new house, a new state, a new city, new church, new haircut, new body. We try all these things, and you don't need a degree in psychoanalysis or Bible interpretation. You really don't need a degree in anything to see just how obvious it is and that it never works. We're very polite pastors here at Zoe, okay? We don't um, want to get in your face all the time about things, but we're not blind. We can see it. We know when it's happening in your life. Most everyone around you can. And so here's the deal. Solomon is saying a million new beginnings will not change the fact that there is one end to all mankind. And those attempts at a new beginning will not protect you from the heat of the sun, so to speak. The world is a world of death, of decay, of slowing down, of breaking down, and the feeling of loss that accompanies that is not to be avoided at all costs. That's so countercultural. That's not at all the way that we think. To try to avoid this truth is foolish, immature, and can never work. The better way is to think squarely about death, to lock horns with it, to accept it, to stop trying to convince yourself that you can avoid the crisis by simply not thinking about it. So then how do you survive an existential crisis under the sun? Well, the first step is to look ahead, to understand and accept the reality of death. And then step two, Solomon says, look at your life. Verses 4 through 10. I said a midlife crisis is marked by a 100 new beginnings or a million new beginnings rather than a willingness to look at the end. And it's one of those things that's easy to see from the outside. Right? It's easy for everyone to see the, the new wife, the new car, the new face job is so apparent to everyone except the person who's doing it. So Solomon, he invites us not to look at others, but to look at ourselves. If we take stock of life and death, we can find the way to gladness, and the embrace of the end can actually be a blessing, but it requires us to look honestly at ourselves. To deal with the existential crisis, we need to not just look at the end, but at our life and see whether or not we're living in a way that makes sense in light of the fact that we all will die. And in order to do that, it requires us to stop doing some things that we all naturally want to do. And that's what the next set of verses talk about. In verses 4 through 10, there are a number of Proverbs that basically show us that we need to look at our lives and, and really reject some things that so many people naturally are drawn to. 
The first thing that Solomon shows us in this section is that we need to look at our lives and reject constant diversions. Look at verses 4 through 6. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. What is Solomon getting at here? Well, he uses the words mirth, songs, and laughter. And these are are words that aren't really morally loaded. These aren't necessarily bad things, right? The Bible doesn't say that it's bad for you to be happy, that it's bad for you to sing songs, that it's bad for you to laugh. But what Solomon is getting at here is the idea of diversions. Something that you do and you fill your time with so that you can avoid thinking about serious things. Does this mean that you can't enjoy life, that you can't watch football, that you can't go to a concert or catch a movie? No, that's not what Solomon is saying at all. He has nothing against enjoyment. In fact, in the next chapter, he's going to say enjoyment is a good thing. He commends it. But the image here is the image of a house. You guys see that? He says that the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's where you spend all your time. It's where you make your home. It's where you go to bed. It's where you wake up in the morning. He says that the person who is dwelling, living, eating, sleeping with mirth all around, just seeking pleasure and joy and smiles all day, every day, isn't really dealing with the problem. The definition of a diversion is, again, an activity that diverts your mind from serious concerns. And this is so common for us. We can fill our minds with diversions. A man who lives for fantasy sports is a man who has set his mind upon constant diversions. A woman who lives simply for the next travel location can often be a person who has set her mind on constant diversions. A person whose life is a fandom of something. That's not to say you can't be a fan, but your life is a fandom and you guys know what I'm talking about. That person has set their mind on constant diversions. Singing and dancing and laughing in the house with fools. And again, it's not because any of these things are bad in and of themselves, but they have no power to sustain our life on earth, nor to solve our existential problem. Look at the second image. He says that the laughter of fools is like crackling of thorns under a pot. What is that image about? Well, if you've ever tried to start a fire, if you've ever spent some time in the outdoors, you know that you need um, tinder. Right? You need tinder and kindling. You need these small sticks, these twigs that you can burn in the beginning to kind of light the fire. But you also know that if you have no logs, you're never going to get heat. Right? If you burn a bunch of small twigs, you'll get a lot of flame, but it won't last and it won't do any work. What he's saying is it's all sparkle, no substance. It's like when I tried to start a fire and my kids figured out that matches would burn and they threw a box of matches in and it blew up. Right? It looked crazy, but nothing happened. Right? It just burned up in a second. Solomon warns that diversions that last a month or a week or a day or a few hours, only for us to find ourselves in crisis again, will do nothing to help us. So the question is, are you filling your life with diversions in an attempt to avoid pain? Are you filling your life with diversions in an attempt to avoid the crisis that you find yourself in? If so, you will not 
solve or survive your crisis. You will simply prolong it. More streaming services can't help. More nights out with the boys won't help. More fun experiences and theme parks and cruises won't help. We need to reject constant diversions. What else? He says in the next verse, verse 7, that we also need to reject the tyranny of the urgent. Read it with me. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Now, this is one of the harder verses in this passage to understand. Um, but what I think Solomon is saying is he's talking about the fact that a focus on the here and now, the present situation, can lead us to do things that are unwise and that we would never want to do otherwise. When Solomon says this, he's not talking about corruption in a political sense, but the corruption of our own souls that can come when we are focused so much on what's present and urgent at the expense of what is long-term. What he gets at in the context of this is a person who isn't thinking about the end will have a tendency to be taken off course by the present. And that's why I use the term the tyranny of the urgent. It's something you may have heard before. It's the idea that what is happening right now, what is present in my face, is always the most important thing. And that's not always true. And we need to understand that. So on the one hand, what he says is oppression or a situation where something goes bad is wrong. Um, You can also uh, translate this um, extortion, which is basically when someone is trying to like force you to give them money by some sort of threat. So when something is going bad in a wise person's life, it turns them to foolishness. It turns them to madness, thinking that they have to respond to that. And and because it has to happen today, they're going to do something that maybe is unwise. In the same way, when he talks about a bribe uh, corrupting the heart, it's the idea that an otherwise honest person might be tempted by the promise of the here and now with a bribe to get short-term gain with the potential of future consequences. For both of these cases, what what is happening here? The person isn't seeing the big picture. The person isn't thinking about the end. The person is not thinking beyond the present. We have to think about the urgent. We have to think about the now. That's part of life. But we also need to understand that the current situation we are in is not always the most important thing. And particularly, trying to simply feel better right now is not always what's best. That's really hard, right? How many of us make decisions in life willfully bringing pain or difficulty or the prolonging of suffering into our lives? We want to just feel better in the moment. And so we, we do things in order to feel that way. But when that happens, it turns a wise man into a fool. It can corrupt the heart. What Solomon says is we need to not just recognize that there is something urgent, but we have to put ourselves, as it were, on the deathbed. And then look at that decision you're making and make it wisely. I was talking to one of you in church the other day about how common it is that families, siblings in particular, Uh, begin to fight in terrible ways when the parents pass away, particularly when they leave them real estate or property. And you guys have probably seen this, right? I see a little bit of nodding in the audience. You've seen this happen in your own families and the people around you, siblings who you never would have thought would have fought when there is a house or a property or an investment available, all of a sudden start to do things that are incredibly mean towards one another. And we were talking about this, and this brother remarked that um, in those fights, it's rarely because anyone actually needs that money to survive. Right? They've been living fine for a long time. By the time this happens, they're already in the latter half of their life. But they just want more money in the bank account, more to have when they die so that 
their kids can fight the exact same way that they did. It's vanity. And yet in the moment, it feels like this is the most just thing. I have to deal with the fact that my brother or sister is trying to steal from me or hurt me or take something from me. It drives people into a sort of madness. In a similar vein, I've seen older saints who I, I know and who I respect from my childhood now in their old age picking up and moving away from friends and family and church because of how bad something has gotten in their urgent life and now ending up in a situation where they have no relationships, where they have no joy, where they go from cruise to cruise to cruise trying to fill their life with diversions, trying to get away from that big empty house. What Solomon says is we need to resist the tyranny of the urgent. You're going through a crisis and you're struggling. You need to put yourself on the deathbed. Look back and say, how will I have wished I acted during this crisis? Then let me act that way now. Look to the end then look at your life. And if you are in crisis, in your struggle, in your situation, make a choice not for short-term gain, but for long-term gain. Be very careful here. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, it's a huge temptation to to read this book and to think, man, what Solomon is saying is carpe diem. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Seize the day. Just uh, live a good life right now. Uh, Some people think that Ecclesiastes is teaching us that we're not here for a long time, but a good time, right? So just live it up. Do whatever you can. There is a lot of foolishness to that. What Ecclesiastes is saying is not live it up now while you can. Rather, the message of the preacher is that you are here for a time that God has determined. So live a life that he would call good at the end. Put yourself in that long-term situation and live a life that he would call good at the end. Thirdly, what else does the preacher give us here? He says that as we look to our life, we need to reject then impatience. Look at verses 8 and 9. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Solomon says that the end of a thing is better, and that patient endurance is better than proud beginnings. In the midst of our crisis, we have to be patient to the end. Patience is what will see us through times that are unexpected and hard when we have the right perspective. But the reality, of course, again, is that oftentimes we don't want to be patient. Oftentimes our pride causes us to act in ways that make no sense in the long term because we are angry or we're, we're, we're caught up in something or we're just, um, we're just in a situation where we feel like we need to do something about it. I think there's an image here that Solomon uses that I've seen in my own life. As someone who who has anger boiling up and it causes him to lash out in a way that you never thought he would. And this results from that one moment in weeks or years or decades of grudges and broken relationships. Instead, Solomon is saying that as you look at your life, as you look at your situation, you need to reject impatience and realize there is value to a slow, steady, settled stability. I think that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about stability. Oftentimes, our crises can cause us to want to throw stability out the window and and to kind of shake things up. And it feels natural. It feels like something that would maybe give you a burst of excitement, make you feel alive again. Solomon says that is foolishness that comes from pride. Instead, we need 
more patience. In my personal translation, I would say what Solomon is saying here is just calm down. You need to calm down. Now, I know that nobody who is angry likes it when someone says to calm down. In fact, many times in my life, I have told someone to calm down, and the result has been for them to be much less calm immediately after I said that. So I know we don't want to hear it from me. So it's a good thing that the Holy Spirit is the one saying it. Some of y'all need to calm down. Okay? You need to be slow to anger, to be settled, to be stable. It's one of the best things you can do to live a good life under the sun, to live a glad life under the sun. See, some of us, we don't have a midlife crisis. We have a life that is best defined as one crisis after another. You know what I'm talking about? It's just crisis after crisis after crisis. Every new thing is the worst thing that has happened in my life so far. And seldom do we realize that it's not simply our circumstances, but it's also a product of our perspective. And this needs to be said in our day and age, okay? We we think that everything happening is the craziest thing yet. And one of the most destructive aspects of not looking to the end is the great instability that comes into our lives because of it. Or we're changing things all the time. Or we're, we're, we're throwing things to the wind. We're, we're, we're seeing what will stick. We're changing up everything in our lives, always making new things, but never seeing things out to the end. Going to a new church. Going to a new relationship. Finding a new fandom to get into. Finding a new society or community or something. They look like solutions. But they only exacerbate the problems. Solomon says you need to develop patience if you're going to deal with the crisis. You need to think about these things knowing that long-suffering is a virtue and not a vice. You know, when we as pastors try to live this out and we look at the church, I don't try to look at you as you are now. Right? I mean... I appreciate you for how you are now. But one of the things that I've tried to do as a pastor is to look at the people in the church and think about them with patience. To, to kind of look down the line and have it deal with, with my own heart. What do I mean by that? Well, I think about what would I say at this person's funeral? Okay, now, not just for you older saints. I think about this for everyone. If I'm there at their funeral, what would I say? And, and if they were at my funeral, what would they say? I think about... In my own home, I think about in the youth group, what would these kids think and look back on? How would they remember their time here? I try to think with patience about the end, and it helps me to have forgiveness. It helps me to have wisdom. It helps me to respond to things, hopefully, in a better way. And maybe just to make it really real for you, maybe you don't know what I'm talking about as a pastor, but you do know the experience of of someone uh, texting you uh, something that makes you really mad. Okay, they text you something and it just seems like a crazy thing for them to say and you just want to respond, right? You just want to respond. You want to tell them off. You want to be passive aggressive or just straight aggressive with them. So when you respond to that angering text or email, what is Solomon giving us? He's saying that you can actually respond, not how you feel in the moment, whether angered or fed up, but you can think about the end. You can reject impatience. And that will reap rewards a hundred times over in your life. It will help you not to blow things up, set things on fire in your crisis, but to have stability that will give you blessing. Reject impatience and the anger that is a result of it. 
And fourthly, as you look at your life in this section, he says you need to reject longing for the past. Look at verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. And this is a hard verse. This is a real hard verse. It's a good one. Solomon says that looking to the end, having a long-term perspective, recognizing that life under the sun will end, should keep us from longing for the past. Now, you might be wondering, Pastor, the past was so much better. (laughs) How am I supposed to stop? Well, Solomon says stop it, right? The past may actually have been better. It's easy to look back and to say, man, those things were so much better. Solomon says that isn't wisdom, though. Even if it is true, that's just feeding the crisis. That's foolishness. Now, don't get me wrong. Maybe things were better in your life at a certain time before. Maybe things are better in the world. Maybe things are better in the country at a certain time in the past. That may be the case. Maybe when you were younger or you were healthier or you were less wrinkly or you were better paid, life felt better in some ways. I feel that sometimes, even just this week, right? I I look at the 1,000-pack ibuprofen from Costco, and I'm like, how could I have finished it within the expiration date? Things were better for my body five years ago. But Solomon says, even if the past was better, those former days are gone. That's what he's saying. Those former days are gone. They are real. They happen, but they are not here now. The problem with not looking to the end is that we no longer live in reality. We look back on what was. Or we are tormented by thoughts of what could have been if I had done things differently. Does it sound familiar to you? Anyone been in a midlife crisis, have thought that way before? What if my life had gone that way? What if I had married that person? What if I had gone to that school? What if I had taken that job or moved to that place? This is what causes us to be in crisis, right? You're thinking about the past. Man, if only I had done so-and-so a thing. It's a crisis that lives in fantasy land. The only things that we have as creatures on this earth are ahead of us. John Piper, the pastor, once wrote in his book, Future Grace, the only life I have left to live is future life. The past is not in my hands to offer or to alter. It is gone. Not even God will change the past. Have you ever considered that? We can't change the past, but you know what? If God is God, he actually could. He could change the past if he wanted to, but he will not. And so what does that tell us about today? Well, I'm in the situation I am in. I'm in the circumstance I am in, ultimately because God ordains it to be so. As one commentator has said, why should we moan about the bad turn events have taken? Why are we no longer in the good old days? The answer is that God does not want us to be. Whether the former days were better or not, to look back is not wisdom. So look forward. Look to the end. And you will see the life that is before you. And you will be able to live more wisely with the time you have left. God is in charge. He will not change the past. He has brought you here in his sovereignty to the very moment you are in, even if you are in a crisis. And so in that crisis, don't look and long for the past, but look in faith to the future. And this idea that God is in charge and that he does exactly as he desires to do leads us to the third and final point of the sermon. Step one, I said, look to the end, consider and accept the reality of adversity and death. Step two, look at your life. Are you living in a way that makes sense in the long term? 
Finally, step three, to survive an existential crisis, you need to look for God's grace. Verses 11 through 14, look for God's grace. Solomon writes, wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. The final verses here, Solomon draws our attention, as he often does in this book, to God. He tells us that the wisdom that is to be gleaned from this book is not beneficial in and of itself. It's only a benefit as much as we are able to look for God, to look for the grace of God who ordains all things. So let's take a look at these verses more closely to see how it comes out. Verses 11 through 12, he says, Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Now, what's going on here? He's making a connection between money and wisdom. Uh, last week, we talked about money in Ecclesiastes 6, how money won't solve your problems, love of money won't make you happy. But there are certain ways in which money can help your life on earth, right? That's a given. The same is true of wisdom. In a sense, what Solomon is saying here is that wisdom is a gift. It's a gift of grace. It's a gift from God for living in this world. Now, maybe you don't see uh, God's grace in this passage right away. But consider what Solomon means when he says that wisdom is an advantage, it is a protection, and preserves the life of him who has it. Now, clearly, he's not saying that wisdom actually prevents anyone from dying. Right? We've gone over that. that that's a, a dead horse. Pardon the pun. He just talked about how we all die. He's also not saying that wisdom alone is the answer to your crisis. Becoming a smart guy or a philosopher is not what it's about. Um, he already said that wisdom was vanity to a certain degree in the previous chapter, or in a previous chapter. But still, there's some benefit here. There's something good. And the key is to know what kind of benefit it is. Now, if you're looking at these verses, the word he uses here for protection is an important word. The word in Hebrew for protection, it's not a general word for like protection or security or like defense from something. The word that Solomon uses here for protection is actually the word for shade. Okay? The word for shade or a shadow. That's what the word is. In the book of Jonah, chapter 4, where we saw Jonah complain about his life, right? That he wishes he were dead. That it would be better to be dead than be alive. Um, there is immediately after that complaint an interesting thing that happens. So in the book of Jonah, chapter 4, uh, Jonah is complaining to God. It's the end of his mission to Nineveh. He goes out from the city, and he's just mad about life. Okay, He's sitting there in the sun. He's, he's mad about his job. He's mad about wickedness in the world. He's bad, mad about how God has made things. Uh, it sounds kind of familiar, right? Maybe it sounds like the way we sound sometimes. He's complaining to God. It's hot and it's burning, and so he tries to build a little hut. Okay, um, And uh, I think because he's a prophet and he makes his living with his mouth and not with his hands, the hut is not that good. Okay, that's my interpretation. So he tries to build a little hut to stop the sun from getting on him, but clearly it doesn't work because what happens next is interesting. In verse 6, the Lord makes a plant to grow. This plant kind of springs out of the ground, and it grows up, and it grows over Jonah, and it provides him with the shade that he was looking for. And in verse 6, this is what it says. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort discomfort. 
And, and if you read the last part of this verse, listen closely. It says, so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. A man who said it is better to live than die, who is sick of his work, who is in crisis under the burning sun of Assyria, finds some gladness in the protection of the shade that God provides. Ecclesiastes has talked about life under the sun over and over again. Now, we live in Texas. Right? We don't need to go to Assyria to understand just how good it is to have shade when the sun is burning hot. Shade is a blessing, but it's fleeting. It's a relief, but it's limited. And it's something that you appreciate more the more you recognize just how hot the sun is. And it leaves us with this truth that the knowledge and recognition of God while we are under the sun in our wisdom can make us happy. Blessings of life can be blessings if we understand that they are protection like shade. They don't change the reality of life under the sun, but they can help us survive and enjoy it and appreciate it more. And when that happens, it's grace. It's from God. This is the picture Solomon is painting. Uh, my kids are, are getting a little bit older. They don't like this show as much, but there's a show that is very popular called Bluey. You guys know about a dog uh, who's blue. And uh, there's an episode of Bluey called Shadowlands. Uh, some of you have probably seen this episode. Uh, in the episode, Bluey and her friends are playing a game where the, the land that the sun hits is the ocean. It's the water. And everywhere that is shade is solid ground. And so basically they're trying to go from island to island of shade or shadow in order to get from the playground back to their mommies. Right? They're running along the ground and they're trying to go from one piece of shade to the other. And in this chapter of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is talking about the end. Right? He's looking down the long highway of life to death, which nobody will escape, where everyone will go. But as he looks down the road, even though we all end up at death, there's something else that he sees. That along the way, along the path, along the journey under the sun, there are pockets of shade that God provides. There's good news in this passage. There's good news in our crisis. There are pockets of shade that God provides in his grace. And like that game from Bluey, wisdom lets us look with clear eyes and walk then from shade to shade during our journey under the sun. And what Jonah reminds us of, what Ecclesiastes points us to, is that the shade we need isn't built by us. It's all given from God. It's his grace. You know, it is Christmas season. And I think it's interesting that one of the images given of Jesus Christ when he came would be that he would be the shoot from Jesse. That he would be this plant growing up from the line of Jesse and David. And, you know, just in the imagery of the Bible, I think it, 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 it's incredible to think that Jesus Christ, who came into this earth, would provide us with the shade that we need to survive on this earth and then to live for the next. How? Well, practically, the Bible says that this type of blessing, this protection, this shade is found through wisdom found in his word, in the Bible, it's found by the power of his spirit which lives within us, and it is found in the presence of his people. God has given us grace. We need to look for it to survive our existential crisis. The wisdom we need to preserve our lives is a gift from God, just like 
the shade. And therefore, the conclusion is that to rightly live in light of death means to receive from God what he has ordained and what he has decided for our good. And that's where the preacher ends up in verses 13 to 14. Consider the work of God. Okay, that word consider is just the word look. Look at the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. Again, look. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. He says, look. In your crisis, in the midst of your consideration of death, in the midst of your struggle or adversity, look for God. Look to God. Look at God. He is a God of grace, and he gives grace. So when times are good, be happy. Enjoy those blessings. And when times are bad, in adversity, when things are hard inside you, when you're struggling and you're wondering what the point is, look even then to him. You may not understand it, but you can accept it. We read Romans 8, 28 to 32, a verse about the, the promises of God to those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, his son. And this is what it says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his promise. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Sounds like positive thinking, but it's not about the power of our mind. It's about the power of our God. It's a wonderful phrase that Charles Spurgeon said, when you cannot trace his hand, you can trust the Lord's heart. That's where Solomon in Ecclesiastes 7 takes us. In the contemplation of life and death and the end of all things, we don't have the power to change them. It doesn't guarantee that we won't have a crisis in our life in midlife or midweek even, but it gives those who have received God's grace in Jesus Christ and in the gospel the confidence to survive those trials, whether good or bad, with faith. To know that God is in control, to know that he still reigns, and we can rest in that. And so Solomon says, if you want to survive your crisis, Look for God's grace. Look to him. Trust him. Orient yourself around God, and you'll be okay. As Job famously said, shall we receive good from God and not evil? The Lord gives and takes away, and you guys know, blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, I started this sermon with the story of Elliot Jackson, so I'll end there too, as we like to do. Years after Elliot Jackson presented his paper on the midlife crisis to the psychoanalytical society, uh, the idea had kind of firmly rooted itself in our cultural conscience. Nobody had talked about it before 1957, but if you had grown up in the 80s or 90s, this is just part of your everyday vernacular. People hadn't talked about midlife crises all the time. Even if it wasn't a perfect science, people understood that he had given name to something that many people felt. That depression, that listlessness, that desire to start over. How did he learn it so well? How did he figure these things out so well? Well, by the time Dr. Jax came to London to present, he actually had lived a pretty successful life. We might call it meaningful. He had been born in Canada. He had gone to university. He had moved to the States to become a doctor through John Hopkins University. 
He received a PhD from Harvard. He had fought in World War II, serving as a major with the Canadian Army, and he and his wife had gone on to adopt a daughter. They had become very productive members of the greatest generation. But in an interview later in his life, he admitted to the interviewer that the anonymous 36-year-old patient he had quoted in detail wasn't a patient at all. It was just himself. And just a year before he had written that paper, he had divorced his wife. He had tried to blow things up and start over. And it turns out he was driven to write about the midlife crisis because he himself was in one. And it's plainly clear from this that the doctor who knew so much about existential crises or crises still had no power to stop them. So then it's not enough to just know that crisis may come. And it's not enough to be able to identify it and name it and figure it out. If it comes, it will come. But if it does, the preacher of Ecclesiastes says that you can survive. By learning if and when that crisis happens, where to look. That's what matters. Where do you look? Look to the end. Remember that your life will come to death like everyone else. And so accept that reality. Live in light of it. Look at yourself honestly so you might gain wisdom to not spend your days like fools in diversions and fantasies and instability and impatience. And then finally look with faith to God who gives grace from above like shade to all those whom he has placed under the sun, but whom he loves and gave his son to save. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that as we think about our lives, and and I know that there are probably people here who are struggling in different ways. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to look rightly in the ways that Solomon points us to so that we might survive, but also so we might understand better who you are, and we might come out of these things with a greater sense of your goodness and your grace. And Lord, I know that from my own life, this is a challenge, that there are times when it seems like we've tried everything and it hasn't worked. But I think also the truth is oftentimes those things we've tried have just been in our own strength. So God, would you do a work in the life of your people here at Zoe? Would you help us to cry out to you? Would you help us to despair of the things in this world so that we might look beyond the world to you? Lord, remind us that you are a God of grace and that to experience your grace in our life on a day-to-day basis is just the greatest proof of your reality and your love for us. It reminds us, Lord, that the gospel shows us that you look upon us not with anger and wrath, But for those who have believed in Jesus, you look upon us with love. And so, Lord, we praise Christ. We lift up his name. We ask that this would be for our good, but ultimately for his glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.